Andrew Fraser is our VP of engineering now. He was with me from the start as, as VP of R&D, and he was able to get a prototype done for really very little money, rapid prototyping. We actually took that device. I mean, we kept rapid prototyping all the way through our first human study. So basically, he and I, as, as the only you know full-time employees, were able to get through our first human study for under a million dollars. Having nice industrial design comes way later <laughs> in these first, you know, just to prove safety and efficacy, you know, you, you want to um, basically spend as little money as you can in, yep. the, in the early days. Our first radio frequency generators were like something that looked like, you know, from Soviet era, <laughs> you know, the engineering and we lugged it across the country, you know, had to get through TSA with this 150-pound generator. So <laughs> now it weighs 15 pounds or less. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey there, it's Scott with MedSider, and in this episode, we're chatting with Dr. Scott Wolf, a prolific medical device entrepreneur and investor who founded Aaron Medical to bring non-surgical therapies to patients with common nasal airway problems. Prior to founding Aaron Medical, Scott started Zeltique Aesthetics, the maker of cool sculpting. His other startups include Endogastric Solutions and Cardiac Dimensions, and he was a partner at Prospect Venture Partners, as well as a VP at Fraser Healthcare Ventures, both leading life science venture capital firms. Scott received his MD from George Washington University and his BA from the University of Pennsylvania. You won't find many people with more hands-on medtech experience than Dr. Scott Wolf, and today he's going to share his expertise with the MedSider community. In this interview, we'll discuss Aaron Medical's technology, break down the advantages of cash pay versus insurance reimbursement, and get Scott's advice for would-be founders hoping to turn a great idea into a real prototype. Okay, so before we jump into the conversation, I want to mention a few things. First, if you spent any time in the medtech or health tech space, you probably understand how difficult it may be to hire the right physician partners. Whether you need help with voice of customer research, advice around clinical study design, or something more straightforward like content review. Whatever the task, instead of spending weeks searching for physicians or paying thousands just to meet one, I highly recommend you check out FlipMD. It's a physician hiring marketplace where you can seek the expertise of thousands of physicians in one simple platform. FlipMD features 2,000 plus physicians in every specialty, and their marketplace is growing every day. When you post your project and set a rate, physicians then compete for the job with bids, and then you make the choice on who you want to hire. To get started, it's really simple. Just register your account, post your project, check out the bids that come in, and then hire a physician. No finder's fees, no obligation, and no risk. It's super easy. Even better for the MedSider community, FlipMD is offering to waive their normal transaction fee for the first 60 days. So just head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD for all the details. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to MedSider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a MedSider premium membership. 
We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Dr. Scott Wolf, welcome to Bedside Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and for the sake of this conversation, we'll, we'll keep it informal. I hope you don't mind. We'll, we'll go back and forth as fellow Scots, if that's okay. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. I mentioned your your more professional bio kind of at the at the outset of this this interview. But let's let's start here because you've got an, an incredibly impressive background and as you know as as a, not only a startup founder but also um, as an investor as well. So uh, lots of stuff that we'll get into over the course of this discussion. I hope, but um, I'd love to hear it from you first. Can you tell us a little bit more kind of about your your professional background, kind of leading up to uh, your work with Aaron Medical? Yeah, so I've um, spent really my whole career in life science startups. So like you said, I've, I've either started companies or I invested in them as, as a venture capitalist or an angel investor. I got into this whole area, I guess, from the time I was uh, a boy, I, I had plans of being a doctor. And um, I guess Mike Tyson said it best. He said, everybody has a plan until they're hit in the face. And uh, that happened, uh, I guess, in medical school, I, I found out, uh, boy, I like this. I like learning the science. Um, I think uh, the, the biology is amazing. Practicing medicine really wasn't for me, but I found the unmet problems in medicine really interesting. So that, that's where I've, I've spent my career. And after, after my internship, I had an idea that I wanted to start companies and just, just pushed myself into it and so um, have founded, like you said, a number of companies um, over my career and was also a, a venture capitalist with, with two firms. And uh, after founding Zaltique, I went off on my own and, and uh, founded Aaron Medical. Got it. That, that's super helpful. And I think uh, you, you mentioned Zeltique. I think most people are going to be maybe most familiar, right, with Zeltique and the commercialization of uh, cool sculpting. Right. I think any, I'd be surprised, you know, if there was people listening to this, uh, this interview that weren't weren't familiar with with cool sculpting. And hopefully, hopefully maybe you can touch on on that that experience or we've, we've maybe some of those experiences into this into this conversation. But um, knowing kind of at least a high level of your background now, let's kind of go back to that, like 2010 ish time frame, something like that, when at least kind of I, I think those were the more maybe the more the, the formative years for for Aaron. And I think this was coming out of maybe your your time at Prospect Venture Partners, but tell us a little bit about like this idea for how how the Aaron kind of platform you know came to be, and if it's helpful, maybe maybe we start with kind of like what it is and why why a patient may even benefit from this technology. Yeah, yeah, sure. So Aaron developed and is is marketing now office based solutions for nasal obstruction, rhinitis, uh, chronic rhinitis, and really focused on all of the most common complaints that bring people into the ENT's office. And uh, we do this with a, with a proprietary uh, temperature-controlled radio frequency platform. So it's really the first 
platform where you can, in the office, uh, accomplish things um, that really you could only do with surgery in the past. So we have two products now, Vivere, that's a, a product for nasal obstruction, and Ryanair is uh, for chronic rhinitis. Got it. And just to talk, I, I don't want to spend too much on the, like the disease state per se, but someone that's dealing with one of those issues, they're having trouble breathing, right? But maybe you could provide a little bit more detail just to kind of help level set people who are listening, kind of what, you know, what, what this typical kind of like patient treatment kind of, yeah. you know, uh, pathway looks like. Right. Yeah. So for people with, with chronic nasal obstruction, you know, it's really just anybody who feels like they don't breathe well enough through their nose. So it could be that, you know, they feel stuffed up on both or one side, or they feel, you know, at night that it's hard to sleep or they're snoring, you know, it's, um, it's really anybody who feels like, um, like they just don't breathe as well as they want to through their nose. That brings them into the ENT's office eventually, you know, and that's, that's probably the most common complaint that ENTs hear. And so what typically happens is this patient will go through medical, you know, they'll try allergy therapy and, and uh, all the medical therapy they can. And the ENT, they'll finally get to the ENT and have an exam and, and, you know, probably the ENT will probably find that they have a deviated septum or enlarged turbinates. Those are probably the most, the two most common things that'll lead and eventually they'll they'll go to surgery to have um, you know say a deviated septum repair so that that's kind of a common pathway and what my original idea was is that this is a problem of how a patient feels really you know this is a the the goal really is to get that patient feeling better to get that patient feeling like they're breathing like they want through their nose like they're getting enough air through their nose and exercise. So it it really maybe not focus on what their anatomic problem is, focus on how to get them breathing better. So that's, um, it's, it's kind of um, a subtle differentiation, but in my mind, it was really, I guess, profound for me when I, when I had that thought. So I, um, I started looking at what causes all the resistance in your nose, you know, what, and there's this area called the nasal valve and it's the, I had never heard of it. And it's an anatomic structure in your nose. That's the narrowest part of, of your nasal airway. And so my, my thought was, okay, if we enlarge that area, no matter what, wouldn't a patient breathe better? And and you could, and, and it's basically the way breathe right strips work. Also, you know, they pull on this, most narrow part of the airway and open it up and really small changes make a big difference. Um, airflow varies through a tube to the uh, fourth power of radius. So little changes make a big difference. So that's where I focused. And I, from my work in aesthetics, I had been, I'd founded a company called Primeva where uh, using radio frequency energy to shrink tissue for wrinkles. So I knew something about how to, how to shape tissue without ablating it, you know, without, without uh, really damaging tissue. Cause in the skin, you obviously don't want to damage the epidermis, but you want to shrink the dermis. It's kind of the same thing that I was going after here 
is kind of replicate what a breathe right strip does inside by just curving this little piece of tissue. So yeah, that that's really what uh, I guess the main the main thing that's novel about about what we're doing for nasal obstruction. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And I want to kind of, um, I want to, I want to ask you a few more questions about how you, you know, how you typically get to the first, you know, alpha or beta version of a product, Um, a product like, like what you're uh, like the, the tech that you're, you're developing at Aaron, but just so I understand, I mean, I'm I'm assuming this is a super minimally invasive procedure, right? That someone just gets done and in an ENT's office, correct? It, yeah, it's very minimally invasive. It uh, um, it's done under uh, local anesthetic, and really, it it's quite quick. And um, you know, it just uh, you can basically have the procedure done in about half an hour for both sides, and go right back to your normal activity. So it's all office based. The physician just does it with a speculum, so just without even an endoscope for the. Uh, for our nasal obstruction product. For our rhinitis product, we uh, use an endoscope, but it's the same uh, similar technology and also quite quick. So, um, yeah. Cool, cool. That, that That's helpful. Let's transition a little bit to, you know, how you take kind of like this idea, right? And I, and I love the fact that you called out kind of that subtle difference on how you kind of viewed the the problem, you know, um, with how patients typically approach this this challenge. But there's a lot of folks that are listening to these, you're listening to the med, these med center interviews that are, you know, physicians, engineers, you know, et cetera, that have like what appear to them to be pretty cool ideas uh, to maybe solve fairly large problems. But how do they, like, what's your advice for getting to that next next step and actually kind of beginning to make this, this idea that's maybe on the back of a napkin into an actual product, right? Whether it's an alpha, you know, version, a beta version, like, what do you see? Maybe maybe some of the, the mistakes you've made in the past, or what you often see startup folks make, and how you you know what what would be your advice for you know for those for those folks that are in, in a similar position. You know, I, I think this is the key question for everybody who wants to uh, start a company. You know, has an idea, and uh, so what do you do? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, because everyone has ideas, but not everybody it turns them into reality. And, um, you know, so I guess, uh, for me, the main thing, um, one, one quote I've always loved was whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. And I say that to myself all the time. And so it's, it's really take that first step and your first step could be almost anything. <laughs> it could be naming the company. It could, and and the first step will lead to the next step. And it's all about iteration. So your steps might not be, you know, the right steps. Um, it, you, you could make mistakes, but it really doesn't matter as long as uh, I think movement towards the goal is is really the most important thing. So. Yeah, so that that would be my advice. I mean, the goal of of taking an idea. And turning it into reality, for you, you have to wring out risk, you know, as as you go along. So, for instance, for Aaron, you know, I had to sh- show that we could, uh, you know, that that this would be a safe and effective thing to do before we raised any money on it. So we were uh, really, how do you do that? And it was um, we were able to, for not a lot of capital, build a prototype. Uh, go into get animal tissue from the butcher and 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 look on the bench top 
that we could actually make the uh, changes that we want. And then, uh, so kind of, you know, each step takes you a little bit closer and, you know, to the point where you can actually raise money to, to move into humans. Got it. Got it. I, I, I love the fact, and I, I, I want to maybe go touch on this a little bit, but like, I love the fact that you just brought up getting even tissue from the butcher, right? So here, here we have like a, a very, very proven, successful, like startup medtech, uh, you know, founder like yourself, and you're still kind of going back to the butcher, right? For some of this early feasibility work, right? So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And maybe, um, maybe let's put ourselves in the shoes of a, of a startup founder has, has what appears to be a great idea on paper, maybe even has like a cool looking deck, right? Um, raising seed stage money is, is especially in medtech is pretty tough, arguably maybe, maybe the toughest thing to do. How much budget do you think like is expected to kind of throw at, throw out a product, right? So it's something that you can actually work on and showcase, right? Uh, maybe it's the, the very alpha version of a product, right? To be able to like actually showcase in your, in your situation that it can actually ablate the type of tissue that you want. What is like the range? Like what, what's your advice for, for folks kind of that are in that, in that very kind of like interesting spot um, yeah. getting something off the ground? Well, it depends. And okay. you know, so for, for something like Aaron, where, you know, there are that we were able to, for a, a couple, well, probably $100,000, let's say, you know, get uh, through an initial benchtop studies to prove. So get, you know, now with um, rapid prototyping and, and 3D printing, you know, you can do a lot with not a lot of money. So we were able to make devices that we could test on on the benchtop. So it really, I guess the goal is to do as much as you can for the money that you have, that you can then use that to raise the first, you know, whatever, whatever it is to get to your next goal. But however you do it, like I said, the butcher, I mean, if, if you can go to home Depot, you know, if you, can, you know, do things on CAD, however you do it to tell your story, you know, to, to be able to wring out risk and, and show investors that, you know, this is uh, something that, really has the potential to work. That's really the main thing. So it's going to, you know, based the, the budget is going to be different for, you know, a radio frequency device than it would be for, you know, quantum computer mm-hmm. uh, in medicine. Got it. No, that's super helpful. Even to like have some ballpark number to hear you kind of throw out some ballpark numbers, right? Because I don't know, just in, in my network, you know, there's a lot of folks that would have like to have this great idea and, they immediately go to like a cool industrial design shop and then they're in all of a sudden they're in whatever, 30, 40 K just for like cool looking renders. And it's yeah. like, oh, you can actually get that done a lot cheaper and you don't need to look, you don't need it to look like totally pretty at this point. Right. Let's get to like an actual tangible thing uh, to see whether or not this, this works. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad you even threw out like a hundred K just to like, that should be, you know, I mean, all, all things considered, there's going to be some variability of course, but like, that could get you to some, you know, through some initial prototyping, even some, some benchtop testing even. Oh yeah. No, we were able to get, so Andrew Frazier is our VP of engineering. Now he was with me from the start as, as VP of R and D. And he was able to get a prototype done for really very little money, rapid prototyping. And we actually took that device. I mean, we kept rapid prototyping all the way through our first human study so basically he and I as, as the only, you know, full-time employees were able to get through our first, 
human study for under a million dollars. Having nice industrial design comes way later (laughs) in these first, you know, just to prove safety and efficacy, you know, you you want to um, basically spend as little money as you can in the the early days. Our first radio frequency generators were like something that looked like, you know, from Soviet era, (laughs) you know, the engineering and, we lugged it across the country, you know, had to get through TSA with this 150-pound generator. So <laughs> now it weighs 15 pounds or less. Yeah, it's great. I love to. I love to hear that because I mean, I'm I'm sure you could you would probably agree. Like, it's it's easy to get like um, enamored with like something that looks pretty cool, like some really cool ID, and just kind of lose sight of the fact that you need to. There's a lot a lot more steps kind of along the way that are that are uh, much more important, you know, uh, when it comes to these uh, med tech projects. But on that note, let, let's transition to, you know, you mentioned kind of, you know, getting to your first clinical studies. Let's talk a little bit more about like reg and clinical, and maybe we start, start out with the, the former, meaning, meaning the regulatory environment. I'm assuming that your the Aaron technology, it's a it's 510K device? Correct? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. got it. Generally speaking, like from your perspective, maybe as a, as a startup founder, as well as like an investor, do you almost have a rule where you're just working on 510k devices or what would, what would cause you to, to maybe even go down like a de novo and, or even a more like, you know, capital intensive PMA process? What's your general take kind of on, on the regulatory environment as it, as it pertains to, to startup uh, med tech startups? So I don't have any, you know, rule against de novo pathway or, or PMAs. So it's about how, how fast you can get to cash flow positive, really, you know, and how, how much money it's going to take to get, you know, through your clinical studies. So because for Aaron, you know, we, we eventually re- we're doing even, you know, right now we're in the middle of two randomized control studies, which, you know, for medical devices is, um, is a big deal for any company to do randomized studies um, in devices. So, you know, eventually we, we wind up doing the, you know, the even more, more studies because um, then a PMA path would have required. So, but it's, it's expensive. And, and for a PMA, you have to spend that money, you know, in, in advance before you, you have approval. So that's, that's kind of the big difference I think is uh, when the, when you're actually spending for those big, clinical studies. So yeah, 510k is always going to be, you know, just, just in general, easier to build a company around, but, um, PMA products have been, you know, if, if you're doing, um, a neuro implant that you can, you know, eventually sell for, for $20,000 and, and are reimbursed, you know, I mean, that's worth going after a, um, you know, a large expensive, uh, PMA path. Sure. On um, when, when it comes to like, the regulatory pathways that you've kind of encountered right throughout your experience. Is there anything else that you maybe that you've went through that you learned a lot from, or, you know, kind of, kind of walked away with a bit of a, uh, aha, I like, I'm, I'm not ever going <laughs> to, I'm never ever going to make that mistake again. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, yeah, you know, it, it um, uh, certain, so, so uh, endpoints, you know, so timing of endpoints and, I did. Uh, I started one spinal implant company with um, partners of mine from Scout Medical back in the day, and um, that one required, you know, a two-year follow-up for the endpoint. And so, 
so yeah, I, I'll, I'll never do that again. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it's too long. So that things like that, where you know, for a specific device, you know, either you have to have very difficult and expensive endpoints. That's the main thing. Got it. And on that note, since we're kind of talking about you know clinical, really clinical study strategy per se. Any, any best practices that you've kind of followed, right, as you begin to think about kind of the, the overarching clinical evidence plan, you know, for, you know, your, your whatever startup company you're kind of working on? Well, the, the worst thing that can happen to a company is to have a, a late stage failure, right, to have a failure in a clinical study. And that happens in pharmaceuticals, I think, you know, more often because, yeah, it's just harder, harder to get early data so you never want that to happen in devices. So your strategy should be to ring out, you know, uh, all of the risk before you get to the point where you're doing large human studies. So that's that's one thing. The other is to have really be be very careful about the endpoints because those those have to matter. You know, they they have to be the thing that's not only going to get you know your your FDA clearance or, or or approval, but has to be the thing that that patients and physicians care about. So it's really, yeah, just study design. And then on actual doing the studies themselves, enrollment times can really, you know, that's one of the most important things, you know, for the whole company is, um, is how fast you can enroll these studies, because yeah, it, uh, if, if you're, you're, you have your you're spending your burn while you're doing these studies, so you have to, I guess, plan have the best enrolling and uh, physicians and and uh, that you can and have have plans in place if if uh, enrollment's not going well, um, maybe using what we're what we're doing a lot now with Aaron is using social media advertising to recruit patients, and that's gone very well. So really thinking about, you know, and designing the study for rapid enrollment also. So everything has to be geared towards towards being able to rapidly enroll uh, a successful study. Got it. This, this is, I'm thinking about right now, I'm incorporating the word rapid into the title for this. Interview. Yeah. We're talking about <laughs> rapid prototyping. Are we talking about rapid, uh, rapid enrollment? I like that. I've never actually heard, I mean, I, Clearly, the, the idea of, of focusing on, you know, enrollment is, you know, that's important. But I like I like the, the kind of the way you describe that. Right. Like, you know, having a having a plan for rapid enrollment is uh, is ideal. I like that. I like the way you describe that. Um, let's talk a little bit about something that's probably in, in, on a very similar note, kind of as Ray clinical kind of the next 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 big one, you know, reimbursement insurance coverage, coverage and reimbursement. So with respect to like Aaron's technology, was there an existing or is there an existing code in place for your technology? And then. Whether, you know, regardless of how you answer that, I'm curious as to how your approach when you think about designing and developing, you know, med tech, med tech devices that like could be really great, but the path to, you know, a CPT code or insurance coverage and reimbursement is just going to be too big of a, a hill to climb. So curious to get your kind of your, your opinion on on this, this topic of uh, insurance coverage and reimbursement. Right. Yeah, no, exactly what you said is um, it's. It can be very expensive and and time consuming to get a new code, and it, it will be, and that's what we are doing at Aaron right now. Is um, we're going for new codes 
and there are existing uh, existing codes and and so that it's kind of a dual strategy but uh, if you're going for a new code you have to have a very good plan and really understand what you need to do that and really have uh, the capital to um, to be able to do that so yeah it's always best to um, have an existing well reimbursed code um, I think that's that's mm-hmm. obvious but it's definitely doable to build a successful company and while going for a new code. Yeah. I've got two follow-up questions, but one is actually regarding cash pay. And I'm, I'm curious to kind of get your take considering your, all of your experience at Ziltik with cool sculpting. But before we go there, when it comes to you know, maybe the need to establish an, a new code, I recently had interviewed Mike Kujak with Francis medical and then Sean Saint with companion medical, which, which um, recently sold to, to Medtronic, but they both hinted at, at this idea of like, when it comes to insurance, coverage reimbursement, you got you to start early and, and really start to establish relationships with with payers. So is that been kind of your experience as well as like, do you start that that process and really try to engage with the payers pretty early? Yeah, exactly what they said, because uh, you're going, uh, that it's really um, the biggest, uh, unless you're sell, unless it's pure self-pay, like uh, cool sculpting, you know, you're, you're going to encounter both coding and uh, payment issues, you know, and and so working with the academies to um, plan for new codes, and then uh, working with uh, with the payers for their reimbursement decisions, you know, you definitely need to need a plan for that, and and even you know have you know eventually we actually uh, have um, someone in house now who's uh, who's that's their sole job is to work on that. Got it. Okay, cool. So what, what I'm hearing is like it just, to, just you're kind of echoing the, the sentiment from some of those other, other folks is like, it oh, needs yeah. to be, it needs to be a focus for sure. Yeah. If it's not, it's a, it's, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's an, a, a, you want the physicians are, want the best for their patients, but it's a, it's a, a sad reality that, you know, patients in general, don't pay out of pocket <laughs> for anything <laughs> other than aesthetics. And uh, so, you know, it's just, just the way our system is, I, I guess, uh, people, what people are used to and how, how it's designed. I don't know if that's going to change, but. It seems like, I mean, who knows how, how quickly that will change, but right. definitely seems like there's a, there's an under, um, sort of there's an undercurrent of people willing to pay cash to be pro, a little bit more proactive about their health. But on, on that note, like let's, let's talk like maybe a few minutes around your experiences with, with Zeltik and cool sculpting. When you think about kind of like the cash pay environment of like the world of the world of aesthetics, do you kind of think that if I, if you could operate in that world all day, that'd be so much easier or like, how do you, how do you balance kind of those two kind of potential pathways for, and I'm, I'm really kind of referring to, to med tech folks that are kind of maybe, maybe thinking about like going all in on this cash pay route and they think they can maybe pull it off. Like what's your general, general kind of like advice for, for those folks? Yeah. I mean, so it's definitely the case that cash pay is, uh, is a pleasure when you've been, you know, when you come from this world of uh, coding and reimbursement and payment. So it is great. And there's in, in, in a field like aesthetics, the physicians are rapid adopters because they, uh, I guess, you know, first of all, want to have the, the build a market. Their practices is having the, the best latest technology and to 
bring patients in the door and give them a, an effective solution to their issues, and then also have that patient to eventually, uh, um, you know, as they age and need other procedures, you know, have that patient in the practice. So there's a lot of reasons why aesthetic physicians are are going to be rapid adopters and willing to pay for new technology. And uh, yeah, and and patients want you know, will are, are, have proven to pay for, for beauty. (laughs) So that's, that's not a big surprise. I guess the, on the other side, it um, is quite, you know, very competitive and, you know, there, there will be new technologies coming, you know, uh, down the pike. And, and so I guess it's, it, uh, it's, there's less, um, yeah, there's just always going to be, the newest thing that uh, you know you're you're competing against. So you, it's you can grow to a certain point very quickly, and then I think it's difficult to uh, to hang on to that uh, that lead position forever. Sure. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. Just know knowing that you know there's kind of that that sort of cuts both ways, right? In terms of clinicians, aesthetic cl- clinicians rapidly yeah. adopting technology, right. but it also means. It also means they're willing to adopt other other yeah. companies' technology pretty rapidly as well. Right. So yeah, yeah creating a lot, of, a lot of competition in the meantime. And right. yeah, I mean, we, we could probably talk for for I have a whole another interview just on kind of this 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 whole cash pay thing. I mean, I, I certainly you know over the past four or five years with Juve, um, you know, you know, commercializing a cash pay kind of over the counter you know class two device, uh, you know, have have a lot of stories to tell about, um, but you know, you know, consumers' willingness to to pay a lot of money, you know, for, for their, uh, their health. So um, I definitely think that there, there's a trend there for sure. We'll just see how, how quickly that unfolds over time. But um, I know we're, uh, we're, I'm eating, I'm eating into our time. So I want to, I want to kind of ask you, ask you a few, few other questions before we get to the rapid fire kind of portion of the interview. Okay. So this next one, I think you'll, you'll uh, is probably maybe of mo- particular interest for, uh, from my perspective is kind of this, this concept of, of investing. And we touched a little bit, right. About, um, around early stage investing, but considering you have, um, Scott, sat on both sides of the table, right, as a, as a venture investor and then as a very successful, like, you know, uh, startup founder time and time again, what's your general advice for, you know, med tech founders that are in those early stages? And I kind of want to focus more on the early stages versus the later stages, but in that kind of, you know, pre-seed, seed, maybe series A, and there's going to probably be some variability in terms of their approaches at, at each of those stages. But like, what advice would you give to most, most people that are in, in those early formative years with their, uh, with their idea or with their company? So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start off at going what you've said, which is that that is the difficult money to raise. So in med tech, raising a, uh, a seed round especially is very difficult. And so I've talked a lot about ringing out risk, but that's where you really have to, I guess it's, it's most important. Um, you, you need to be able to tell these seed investors, you, you need to be able to convince them uh, in this early stage that this is an idea that's, you know, rings out the risk in, in all the areas that they're looking for. So it has a very large market. It has a straightforward uh, regulatory and clinical plan and that is going to be safe and and work, you know. So, however you can do it, that's what you need to do. So that's what that's why I talk about going to the butcher, going to Home Depot, you know. I mean, just whatever you can do to to bring out that risk. One mistake I see when when first time founders go to raise 
their seed round is they're not confident enough. They're, they, you know, the, what, what investors are looking for is investing with the world expert in this field. And so you really need to know your stuff and be confident that, that you know your stuff, you know? And so you don't have to know the answer to every question that is being asked, but you have to know the question is coming and how to answer it. So that's, it's talking to a lot of people before, you know, before you're, you know, and and whether it's just going, you know, to pitch your idea a million times or doing, you know, run throughs and however you, you do it, but you talk to as many people as you can and understand the questions that, that investors are going to ask and either give them good answers or explain why you you don't have the answer to it, but here's how you're going to find out. So I guess those are the two main things. Yeah, that's, that, that's great advice. One other kind of quick follow-up question on, on this kind of the seed stage um, fundraising kind of topic, if you will. I, I recently had Renee Ryan on the show too with, she's now running Cala Health, but is yeah. uh, also sat on both sides of the table, right? Yeah, um, yeah. As yourself. Well, we've she, been on a board, to, at least one board together. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, I don't know her obviously as well as you do, but uh, but she she was uh, she provided some really really fun answers um, to a lot of these same same topics that we're talking about. But um, she made a, a really interesting comment around around dilution. She said, like, I see this over over and over again. Like, so many founders just get caught up on how much they're being diluted, and she said, you just can't like you can't get you can't get stuck on that. You need to be focused on on who's backing you and the value add that they bring to the table. And so on that note, I'm, I'm presuming you probably agree with, with all or most of that, but like what should early stage founders expect in terms of dilution, right? At, at, at those, you know, whether seed or maybe, maybe we'll just start with seed round. So if I've got an idea that's maybe, maybe I even have a prototype of it. What is typical dilution, you know, from your perspective at that, at that seed stage? It's just too hard to give any kind of general answer to that, except mm-hmm. To say um, it's going to be, you know, it's it's uh, there's going to be a lot of dilution, <laughs> you know, <laughs> over time, and it's not just the first round. It's it's overall that, that you really have to think about because, um, you know, if you can get if you get uh, diluted in the first round, but that money takes you to higher valuations for future rounds, you might be in much better shape than uh, if you you know, if, if let's say things don't go well, or you, you didn't meet the endpoints that you need to, to raise money at a higher valuation, what really hurts, I guess, are down rounds. So the way that, uh, you know, most documents are, are uh, worded is, is if there's a down round, you know, the founders get extra, extra dilution, basically. And uh, that that really hurts. So what really hurts is having to raise more money, um, doing extra rounds, having to you know face a down round. So I agree. You know what what Renee said is is right. If you can get the right investors that are going to help you meet your you know your your uh, goals for to raise money at higher valuation, that's going to be worth a lot to you. Uh, that's great to hear your your, your perspective on that. Um, I want to transition to the rapid fire questions, but any anything any last things you, you want to say about about Aaron Medical? Like, what 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 are you most excited about? Like, you know, as you kind of see the in terms of what's ahead for the for the company over the next few years. Well, I think um, the the platform this this um, temperature controlled radio frequency is 
it can do a lot in the uh, nasal passage. It's basically the first non-ablative uh, technology that can, you know, that can uh, treat in, in the uh, nasal passage. So there's more that we can do with the platform, but um, I'm, I'm excited. To, uh, when, I, when I see a, a physician who's used it a lot and sees their patient coming back with, with good outcomes, they start to look at it differently and look at it as, boy, I can really, you know, this is really a first-line therapy for nasal obstruction or for rhinitis. And it's not, you know, something to be used if, if you can't do surgery on a patient. It's something, you know, uh, that's first line. And that's what we're seeing now. So I'm, uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, that's cool. That's great to hear. And I'm, I'm assuming you probably have people that are interested in learning more about what you're doing. Just go to the website, aaronmedical.com, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, but that's A-E-R-I-N right. medical.com. Yes. Hey everyone, if you're looking for a contract manufacturer that specializes in minimally invasive interventional devices, you need to consider Switchback Medical. Here's why. First, their world-class engineering team has deep domain expertise in the endovascular space. Think of pretty much any interventional device, and a switchback engineer was probably involved in its creation. I can't think of another R&D partner with the sheer amount of knowledge and experience they have in the vascular arena. Switchback can be your single source solution for all your contract design and manufacturing needs. Second, Switchback recently launched Biosim Innovations, a full-on biosimulation lab that uses human and animal models, as well as cell, tissue, and organ cultures. It's the perfect lab for physician training, preclinical model development, and device testing. Switchback Biosim Innovations provides a phenomenal sandbox environment for scientists, engineers, and physicians to innovate together. Demand is incredibly high for an experienced design and manufacturing partner like Switchback Medical, but for the MedSider community, Switchback is offering to expedite your quote to the top of the stack. Just visit medsiderradio.com forward slash switchback. There you'll find the best ways to get in touch with me, and I'll personally provide an intro. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash switchback. Okay, let's get back to the rest of the conversation. Well, let's use these last few minutes, if you're okay, Scott, to just kind of uh, run through some rapid fire uh, questions. Feel free to respond with rapid fire answers, keeping in, in line with this kind of this rapid theme uh, <laughs> that we're having okay. this conversation. Right. Uh, or if you want to expound, don't, don't hesitate either. But um, let's start with the first one. What is the most uh, important piece of advice you'd give to someone that is starting their uh, entrepreneurial journey? And you can maybe, you know, tweak that to someone in med tech or just, you know, entrepreneur, uh, like an entrepreneurial journey in, in general. Well, uh, number one is to keep your personal burn rate low so that uh, you don't have to uh, be up late at night worrying about where your next meal is coming from or how are you going to pay the rent. So keep that low until you've, uh, until you've made it. That's great. Uh, love it. So practical. Um, what uh, influential books, podcasts, or any other resources have, have been most helpful you know, to you uh, along your entrepreneurial uh, journey? The one I, I go back to a lot, Emerson, um, essay on self-reliance. When I first read, he talks about like how to listen to your, your inner voice, how to, how to take your ideas seriously and, and, um, and drown out the doubts, uh, the doubters that you're going to hear. I love, I love that essay. I also like reading about people who've gone through difficult times and, and came out you know, the other side. So like Abraham Lincoln is my favorite. There's a great book called Team of Rivals 
that I think is really inspiring. All right. I was just jotting, <laughs> jotting that down. Team of Rifles. I've never, I have not heard of that. And then Emerson's essay, how do you spell Emerson? Just, just for those kind of listening in and, and not don't have time to check the show notes. Oh, yeah. Emerson is um, uh, E-M-M-E-R-S-O-N. Got Ralph, it. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, okay. Ra- okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I must. Yeah. I, I have maybe my residual New York accent. Uh, <laughs> Very good. I think most people are at least familiar with, uh, with, uh, yeah. with Emerson now that you, uh, you, you put them in, in context here. Okay. Um, cool. If you had to, let's get to the second to last question here is if you had to teach a class on one thing, what would that subject or topic be? If I could teach it on anything, I would probably teach some, uh, the history of science. I really find that fascinating how, Einstein came up with his ideas or, you know, just uh, how the great discoveries were made. Ah, great. Love that. And then last one, starting over, maybe not in your mid twenties, because right, you were still in, you were still probably (laughs) med school at the time. Let's, let's maybe start in your, in your late twenties, maybe early thirties, knowing everything you know now, would you do anything differently? Not really. First of all, if you watch enough Star Trek, you know you don't mess with temporal anomalies. So something's going to go wrong if you uh, change things. But <laughs> I'm pretty happy with the way things are now. Um, I guess I would probably not stress so much <laughs> over <laughs> everything. You know, starting companies can be a, uh, a quite an up and down, you know, um, a thing to do. And um, I think that's something that people have to learn over time is, is to write out those, those inevitable highs and lows that come with this, you know, job. Yeah. So I would, I would uh, teach myself that and avoid, uh, like I said, some sleepless nights. <laughs> Got it. That's, that's, that's great advice. And I, I guess I, I said the last question, but on that note, uh, let me, let me add one more. I know you've got, you know, it sounds like you've got some kids. I'm not sure how, how old they are, but, what what's next for for you? Like after after Aaron, I mean, it sounds like you've got you guys are doing some some really cool stuff. I mean, is there another startup kind of in the in the belt, or, or are you going to kind of maybe go back to uh, to investing? No, no, I want to. Uh, yeah, I want to do. I think I'll just keep doing startups until they don't let me anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I have. Uh, yeah, I want to do another another startup after you know I see. I see Aaron off on its uh, next adventure. No, that's great. That's great. I love it. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for spending an hour, you know, with the, with the MedSider community here. Your, your background is obviously incredibly impressive, but uh, I loved, uh, I love kind of your just down to earth, genuine approach to, to, you know, a lot of questions that a lot of other startup folks have, you know, in the, uh, in, in our audience. So I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on the, on the show. That was a great pleasure. Really nice speaking with you. Yeah, and I'll have you hold on the line real quick. But um, just to, just to recap the the um, the show here, guys. Uh, thanks thanks again for your listening and attention. If you want the show notes to this particular episode, just go to medsider.com. While you're there, if you haven't already subscribed to our email newsletter, uh, sign up. It's completely free, um, and that way you'll know when the next interview goes live. And we certainly don't we won't spam you at all. In fact, the only times you'll you'll hear from us is when uh, when that next conversation goes live. So thanks for your listening attention, and uh, until the next episode of MedSider Radio, everyone uh, take care.